maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. And if you're an Apple Podcast person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcast app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. The 2022 World Cup in Qatar has officially kicked off, but not without controversy. Ever since Qatar was awarded the tournament in 2010, making it the first country in the Middle East to do so, there has been skepticism from the West around the decision with critics citing human rights violations, LGBT rights and possible corruption within FIFA. Today on the podcast, we're joined by journalist and author James Montague, who first began covering football in the Middle East two decades ago. Drawing on his book, When Friday Comes, Football, War and Revolution in the Middle East, he discusses the intersection of football, politics and global power. Our host for the conversation is Joey Durso, investigations writer for The Athletic UK. Here's Joey with more. So first off, James... Qatar. In your book, there's a great anecdote of you in there many years ago with Marcel Desailly, who won the World Cup with France in 98. Tell me about that. When was that? Where was that? So when I first wrote When Friday Comes, it came out in 2008. And I moved to the Middle East. I moved to, to Dubai. It was like my first job in journalism. And so I started kind of seeing all these crazy little football stories. I mean, they seem to be emblematic of some quite wider, bigger, uh, important uh, kind of issues in the Middle East, but also something emblematic of the country that they came from as well. And 
one of the things that was quite interesting is that it was also gave you kind of quite good access to places that sounded like would be impossible to get to. For instance, like Yemen or Syria. You go to Damascus, there's like a low-cost airline. You can go and you can go visit it and go, go for a nice weekend there. And uh, one of the things that came up was Qatar. I mean, no one really went there because it was such a, it's quite a, you know, quite a boring place. There wasn't a lot going on in Doha at the time. But what had happened in like 2004 is that they had hired the kind of Olympic committee, had hired a guy called Manfred Horner, who's this kind of German journeyman coach, who was brought in as a technical director to try to uh, revamp Qatari football and try to make the national team strong enough to qualify for a World Cup uh, and to do well in the Asian Cup, which is the equivalent of the European Championships. And they came across this plan, Manfred Horner's plan, which was to get all the kind of like best players in the world that were like a year before retirement, pay them stupid amounts of money and bring them to Qatar for one or two seasons to play in the local league, which, you know, was one of the weakest leagues in Asia. So, you know, makes it one of the weakest leagues in the world. But they were, Manfred Horner was, I mean, I met him several times. He was an incredible man. He actually found out he died um, a few years ago, sadly. But he was so successful. He managed to get Pep Guardiola there. He managed to get Marcel Desailly, the De Boer brothers, both of them turned up. Gabriel Batistuta was there, although he didn't want to talk to me when I spoke to him, he hung up on me. But Marcel Desailly was probably the big one because he was playing for Al Garafa and kind of playing as a kind of, not, not a striker, but kind of a... Al Garafa, I... I... When I was back in Qatar in July, I went to the Al Garafa Stadium, which is where I believe the USA national team are going to be training. Yeah, and so they at the time they just rebuilt all their stadiums as well, and there was one there was like a mini replica of Old Trafford. And so you know, I turned up in Qatar, so I found out about this, and I went there, and, and it's really difficult to kind of let people understand how today Qatar has almost it's like it's almost treated like the death star right it's it's got such a bad reputation especially in the western world especially in the uk and the us um like there's some nefarious plays plotting to take over the world but then it was a completely different kind of atmosphere like you had the uae and especially dubai which was this thrusting capitalist western facing place where you know any dreams happen like the new york in the desert and all this kind of stuff and qatar was this kind of very quiet place that was undergoing a kind of a kind of cultural revolution, but a political revolution as well. I mean, they had, they just brought in Al Jazeera. Censorship had been banned effectively. I mean, they got rid of a kind of a censorship ministry anyway. They were building institutions. And, you know, that was very uncool compared to Dubai, which was, you know, like, you know, like Manhattan. And so you'd go and visit there and it was just, you know, it was just a really kind of quiet, nice fairly dull place very small place but a kind of a bit of a backwater but that but had the kind of reform-minded leader in uh, emir hamid who uh, altani who was then the kind of leader of the country but anyway one of these was one of these big plans was to get the national team to qualify for a world cup which it never had done they brought these players in the idea was that they would rub off on all the other players and bring the standard of the league up. And so I found out about it and I, I managed to contact uh, Manfred and he arranged for me to come and meet Pep Guardiola to interview him. I mean, he'd only recently you know, left Barcelona and I turned up in Doha and uh, Pep Guardiola was nowhere to be seen. Probably was a bit naive then to believe that he was, but uh, anyway, he didn't turn up, but Manfred did. And the next day he told me where Marcel would be. And so I turned up at his at his training ground, and it was it was it was bizarre because at Chelsea, 
you know, you wouldn't be able to get within, you know, 500 metres of him without being kind of broken in half by a security guard. And, you know, I just walked into the stadium. There was no one on reception. Walked into the cafeteria and there was Marcel Desai sitting there eating kind of on his own, separate from the other players. Sounded a bit lonely the way you described yeah, it. Yeah, it did. It, it, it did seem quite lonely, but it was one of the things we sat down and, we'd, and, and he said, yeah, sit down, have some food, we'll talk. And... You know, it was it was quite interesting seeing the kind of psychology of an elite player because he had the, the pressure that elite players are under to perform is incredible. If you think about the kind of pressure that a football player has to kind of go through, and especially someone in his position, as well as being captain of the, of the French team, as well as being, I think he was he was captain of the French team anyway. But the, the, you know, World Cup winning player playing at the very highest level, you know, a leader, you know, that pressure is just magnified and. What he wanted, what he craved more than anything, what he could have said to me was, you know, the pressure was off. I could earn what I earned in Europe, but no one's asking me to, like, stop Fulham getting relegated or getting a t- team from the championship promoted. You know, there is, there is literally no, there's hardly any fans in the crowd. And, you know, the level was quite low. So he was marauding up the pitch. I think he scored something like eight or nine goals that season. And... It was for him, it was just one more season, get that big money in and that was it. He was out of the game forever. And that's he, he stayed one more season after that. But what it was, in hindsight, when I look back and I've gone back to Qatar countless times, you know, this was the start of something. This was the start of the country realising that sport was a tool that could be used for self-improvement and projection and image building and... Country building in a way, because we've got to remember that Qatar was only founded in the early 1970s. I mean, this is a country that's 50 years old. And so it was, I really feel that that was kind of like a starting point. And I suppose that feeds into one of the big criticisms of having the World Cup in Qatar or in the Middle East is that it's not really a football culture. You know, there isn't much of a tradition there, which I think has certainly been true of Qatar, but as your book shows, is not true at all for many of the other countries that you've been to. I wouldn't even say that it's true for Qatar because one of the things that I've always, I mean, I, I guess maybe it's being English, being a West Ham fan, growing up on like FA Cup third round giant kill, even the phrase giant killings, right? We love an underdog. And one of my, I've always been attracted to the stories of the underdogs. And, you know, my second book was 31-0, which is about literally the worst national teams in the world trying to qualify. But what you realise is that when you see a team like San Marino, right? Or a team like American Samoa or Chelmsford City, where I'm from, right? You know, these are tiny teams and you think, oh, they've not won anything. They've not, they've never been at the elite level. They've produced very few players. And you think that means that there's no football history. But when you look under the bonnet of the culture that surrounds it, even in very small places, and Qatar is a place like, you know, it's the size the population was when I was there. The population was the size of a kind of medium-sized British city. You realise that there is football culture there, that it does mean something. There are stories. There are heroes. There are near misses. I mean... When you start looking into Qatari football history, you realise that there's a kind of before globalisation and after globalisation. Before globalisation, you know, before the start of the 21st century or kind of modern version of globalisation, because globalisation has been going on for hundreds of years. But you see locally produced players from poor backgrounds playing on the streets with no shoes because Qatar, even a few decades before it was founded, I mean, there was a statistic I came across recently that something like 25% of Qatari uh, women died in childbirth, you know, and this is within, you know, within one or two generation of becoming the richest country on earth. And you realise that, that, that there were there were players and stories 
um, of winning local competitions, winning uh, Middle Eastern competitions, winning Asian competitions, that briefly for a few years in the 1980s, Qatar was probably the best team in, in the Middle East. Actually, it's quite funny talking about this now because I interviewed a guy called Khalid Salman, who has become extraordinarily um, famous now around the world because he made an extremely homophobic remark. He's, he's kind of a, an ambassador. Uh, on the front page of newspapers a couple of days ago, right? Yeah, and he so he's probably Qatar's greatest ever player. And he scores a hat-trick against Brazil at what is now called the kind of FIFA Under-20s World Cup. You know, they got to the final of that. Uh, they almost qualified for two World Cups. And they came within one goal twice of qualifying, once in 98. And I think it was, was it 94? No, it wasn't 94. 98 and maybe 2002. You know, these are all stories that build a football kind of culture. But then talking more widely about the Middle East football's been played there for over a hundred years and where you've got a place a region that is so misunderstood and uh, stereotyped and oh, what do they know about football and it's go to the Tehran derby you'll see 120,000 people there I mean now it's a bit different but when I first went to Egypt you'd see the Cairo derby between Zamalek and Al-Ahli one of the great football experiences producing a, a player like um, Abu Treka who's like probably the greatest player one of the greatest players that ever ever come out of Africa. So there was talent, there was culture, there was history and great stories, but there was hardly anybody listening. And one of the things I wanted to do with him when Friday comes was was try and document some of those in a very, I suppose, in a very Western way, but document them and and try to because I was fascinated by them and I wanted to know more about them. Is there, is there one story? So the, the book goes from, you know, a couple of decades ago right up to the, the present day in Qatar World Cup. Is there one reporting trip that you look back on in that book and think, oh God, couldn't do that now? Well, quite a few. I mean, one of them, when I went to Yemen, you know, and this was 2006. And at the time, I remember I came, I came across this story because local newspapers were great in Arabic and in English. You know, they, were, they would have these matter-of-fact local stories, which... I found were just wonderful because there was one I came across that the entire Yemeni national Olympic team had been banned from, I think it was the Asian Games because every single player failed a drugs test. And I was like, how did every player on the Yemeni national team fail a drugs test? Like, what are they taking in Yemen? And the answer was they were chewing cut, which is like this leaf drug that grows at a certain altitude in, in Yemen and in other countries as well. But, and it, it was 80% of the population were chewing it. And this drug was responsible for all sorts of social ills. It was kind of accepted. Uh, it wasn't haram considered kind of banned in Islam or certainly not in Yemen. And this was like pretty powerful stuff. And I thought, well, through this football team, you can kind of tell the story of this, of this drug, which is decimating the country's economy and health and all these kind of things. And so I went to Yemen and I meet the general secretary of the FA who's been brought in to kind of clean up the players and tell them that, they, you know, they, they've got to stop taking cuts or they're not going to play for the national team. And I follow him around for a few days as he's kind of doing this. And I get to see Sanaa, which is a you know, beautiful city. The old city has these, like the first, the first skyscrapers were built in, in Yemen and they're kind of built with like kind of mud, these mud skyscrapers that many of them, were, I mean, they were standing until, you know, the war prosecuted and led by the UAE and Saudi Arabia using weapons supplied by the UK and the US. It was such a, it was such a beautiful place. And it was, and, you know, I spent, you know, this, this good part of a week with this, with this Elliot Ness character trying to clean up the game. Went and watched the Yemeni local football match, which was amazing because if you see Yemenis, the way they dress, they have this kind of like Kandora, this kind of white kind of 
tunic shirt thing with a jacket and a kind of very distinctive type of headdress and they had this kanjal just kind of curved knife and there was kind of there's always violence at football matches they had like a police car out or a car outside with the police in it where they would take people's kanjals off them and give them a kind of ticket and so you had all these kind of wonderful memories like the call to prayer would come out and because nothing was standardized there it was kind of it was like a million call to prayers all coming at different times it was just this, this dizzying beautiful sound you know in this the view was absolutely incredible but then what happens, I, I, you know, after this game, I get, uh, you know, the general secretary says, oh, OK, we'll come back to mine. We'll choose some cut. And I go back with his friends and it's like no one, <laughs> no one can get off this stuff, you know. And we go back to his house and he has the majlis, which is kind of in, in, in Arab houses. You, you know, have this room where you go and meet friends and they kind of you sit on the floor on these cushions. And you're given a spittoon and this bag of green stuff and I was chewing it with them and it, I, I mean it was I've never chewed it since but I'll never forget how it felt like it was kind of it was one of the most powerful things I mean I've never I've never injected heroin so I can't compare it to that but I mean it was pretty I mean it seemed like one of the most powerful drugs you could take I couldn't it was just I was buzzing I was flying and everybody was doing this I'm like like 80% of the country's on this stuff I mean this is insane and then and then there's like a massive like kind of crushing come down and then you know when you think back to that time and I, I keep in contact with uh, Hamad, this guy. He survived the war. He moved to, to Qatar in the end. And the national team kind of has, has, has kicked Cat because it's got big, much bigger problems to deal with. But that's a country that, you know, again, I couldn't, I couldn't really go back to. Same with Syria. And in many respects, maybe even Egypt, because Egypt was probably the place that left the biggest mark on me because I was there kind of before, during and after the revolution. And I became very good friends with the leader of the, the Al-Akhli Ultras, who become this kind of revolutionary movement during the during the Arab Spring. But then the entire movement is the entire revolution is destroyed. You have the Port Said massacre, where seventy-two fans essentially were murdered by government and pro-government figures, and that that revolution is destroyed. And my, you know, many of my friends were destroyed in that. And you know, I'm not sure I could even go back. I mean, I don't know if I'd want to even risk going back to. to to Egypt, so it's it's kind of strange looking back at a lot of these these stories because it was when I first wrote it, it obviously then becomes a completely different world within six months of the book coming out. Yeah, it's interesting. Your, your story of the Middle East are this sort of you know very uh, kind of scrappy and choreographed with the ultras, authentic football which is almost the polar opposite of what most people see with the Qatar World Cup. That it's the ultimate in inauthentic corporate. Do you see that as a contradiction? Well, yeah, because, I mean, if you're thinking about where you would have a World Cup in the Middle East, you you know, in terms of fan culture, there are much better options. I mean, I mean, in a perfect world, I mean... I guess Qatar's safe. Yeah, country's safe. It has the money, um, so it could organise it, and it had the wherewithal to organise it. You probably couldn't have it in Egypt, which would be the... Even given the situation at the moment with it becoming an increasingly more authoritarian regime. Egypt would be a fantastic place. Iran, you know, in a different dimension, Iran would be one of the best places to hold a football tournament, given the kind of absolute kind of obsession and passion for football. And also huge culture of football. And also, you know, they're very good at it as well, which is another thing. Playing England in a few days. Playing England in a few days. There's going to be a rematch with the great Shayton with USA replay of the 1998 um, group stage game. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about whether Turkey is 
part of the Middle East or not, or whether mid, the mid, the, even the phrase the Middle East is some kind of Orientalist construct. But Turkey would be, I mean, I'm calling from Istanbul, uh, Turkey would host an incredible, would, would host a fabulous finals. So there were lots of, you know, options where you could think, okay, this has the kind of culture and, you know, the fan base and the history to do it. But Qatar was really the only place. But this is a, this is a country that's been built in 50 years and only really became part of the super rich in the past kind of 25 years. So, you know, what's happening there? On the one hand, you can look at it and say, look, this is a very corporate kind of type of tournament. But in in another way, you could say that that kind of development, that breakneck development, but it's quite impressive. You couldn't really see, you couldn't really think of anybody else that could have done that. I mean, maybe the UAE in certain respects, but you've, you know, you've always got to remember that f- with that development, and this was something that was obvious the minute I put my foot down in 2004 in, in Dubai, is that all of that economic miracle is built on the backs of millions of workers from Asia and Southeast Asia whose lives are destroyed under the kafala system. And this isn't just a problem with Qatar. This is a problem much worse in Saudi Arabia. It is much worse in the United Arab Emirates, where this issue of kafala and the exploitation of worker rights, you know, does get short shrift. But the World Cup brought this issue to the world's attention. And I suppose if there's one thing I I would say was was a positive, even if it's an imperfect reform process, the fact that when I first went to the Middle East, not a single person gave a shit about kafala. Not one newspaper editor gave a shit about Kafala. The World Cup made people care about it. And I think that is something that is, you know, at least in terms of awareness of one of the great economic crimes of the 21st century, I think that is, that's an important point that shouldn't be lost. Yeah, I suppose it's, I've, I've kind of endlessly been having this discussion and talking about this issue ahead of the World Cup is you get people say like, you know, is criticism unfair? Is it disproportionate? Is it biased? Which, you know, potentially in some cases it is, but I think, this criticism has pretty directly led to improvements which have been incomplete and not gone far enough, I think. Yeah, I mean, it has. I have a lot of respect. There's some great activists who've been on this for, for 20 years. You know, Nick McGeehan, one of them, who's probably seen him in lots of stuff, he's a guy I really, really respect. He's, you know, he's very critical still of the process. And I think he's right in that now, especially as, the, as it's become clear the World Cup will definitely take place in Qatar, which is something that it didn't look like was the case I mean, five, six years ago, there was uh, all these corruption allegations around FIFA that seemed to kind of be kind of surround this and and FIFA. Maybe that might be a reason to take it away from Qatar. Or then you had the Gulf blockade from 2017 to 2021, where basically Qatar falls out with all of its neighbours. So, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of strange situation. I think, yeah, that was a really interesting dimension that came across to me when I spent some time there that we we see it as you know the arab world the muslim world and then western criticism and, and whereas for qatar it's almost the more the more important controversies or conflicts or disagreements are with their neighbors you know this this blockade is just such a big deal yeah it, i mean it is and and the criticism a lot of the criticism of qatar is, is kind of completely valid and the worker rights issue is completely valid as well and now that they've got it and you know they're saying that it's racist to bring this up that it's orientalism to bring this up I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, I think there is definitely a feeling within a lot of... There are newspapers, and we know who they are, that have jumped onto this issue that, that, that wouldn't, give, wouldn't give a shit about Kafala or what happens to those kind of workers in... Um, and especially if you had a similar system in the UK where you had 90% of the country were, were workers from India and 10% were British nationals, you can imagine the kind of system they'd be calling on. But 
originally this World Cup was supposed to be about the Middle East's World Cup, right? The, the Muslim world's first World Cup, the Arab world's first World Cup. And this was about fraternity and bringing people together. But of course, the almost since the minute they won it in 2010, it has been festooned with a kind of jealousy from from its neighbours uh, because there's a lot of there's a lot of inter kind of family inter country rivalries that have that have been going on for for a long long time that this World Cup has kind of brought to the surface and and the blockade was 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 absolutely one of them and you could see that, that when you know there's there was so much hacking going on uh, you know I think the UAE ambassador to Washington had his emails hacked and like you know there's all these hackings and you could see that 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 during this blockade, I mean, the UAE and Saudi Arabia were planning on using the World Cup as a way of punishing Qatar, have the World Cup taken away from them, you know, have it have it shared with the rest of us. And now that it's over, you'd expect it to be, you know, well, this is this is a bit more fraternity going on. But actually, it's not. And if you see how it's being reported in the Qatari press, you know, it's being picked up that on social media, you know, very, very influential voices in the UAE and Saudi Arabia are still pushing critical lines against Qatar. So it's not just it's not just the Western Orientalists, you know, it's it's still the neighbors who the blockade may have officially ended and by the way ended without Qatar having to make any uh, concessions. I mean it was an abject failure by any uh, stretch of the imagination. It embarrassed the UAE royal family, embarrassed um Saudi Arabia. And um you know they didn't have to make any but since then this this conflict is still simmering along and you can kind of see it still playing out on social media even though for most people most uh Saudi nationals most UAE nationals they're going and they're they're a bit more open-minded to the idea because you know there's 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 so much in common between between people in the region Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks for all your support. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When we talk about, you know, the criticisms of the Qatar World Cup, the, the, the two biggest ones we see in the UK are firstly the human rights issue and secondly, you know, LGBT rights. Same-sex relations are illegal in Qatar as they are across much of the Middle East. I mean, what would you say about that? Yeah, they are. I mean, it's I've been propositioned many times in the Middle East, I mean, by, by men, a lot more than women. Homosexuality in Middle Eastern countries is kind of tolerated, but you, you are, you know, obviously within the letter of the law, you, there is nothing you can do. You know, there is it's absolute restriction and it's people could risk their lives by being who they are. It's kind of tolerated in some countries a little bit more than other. For instance, in Oman, turn a blind eye to it. Um, the UAE in Qatar is a little bit like that as well. Except if you come on the wrong on the radar of the wrong person, then you can be you can be punished for it. And so, you know, FIFA knew this when they were FIFA knew this when they were awarding the World Cup. The problem is that any country you give that has a legal system based on Sharia law is going to have a very similar set of um, attitudes and and a legal system towards towards gay people. And um, that's that's incredibly problematic. And I think that FIFA came to that came to that kind of position, well, for, for lots of many reasons, but for this issue, I think they viewed that this was a controllable set of circumstances. But as we know, from what we saw with Khalid Salman in the past couple of days, what he said, people's actual views are on homosexuality, they haven't changed. And this World Cup isn't going to change that either. And there is one argument. I mean, I suppose that, that you know, this is... No, Qatari society has changed at breakneck speed. There is a there's a great book called Inside Qatar by John McManus where he talks about how actually the new generation of Qataris are becoming much more conservative. So this might fly in the face of this a little bit. But you know, attitudes do change over time. And you know, we have to remember. I think I'm, I'm not incorrect in saying this that when the World Cup was hosted in England in '66, I, I, I think homosexuality was still illegal. It was still it was still the law and the statute book then. And that's something, I mean, the World Cup didn't produce that change, but it's something that attitudes do change over time. So if you think of Qatar as a country that has existed for 50 years, where they have got to, where they started and where they have got to, you would hope that this is something that will develop over time. But the World Cup certainly isn't going to, I don't think make that change go any quicker. It's a really interesting dimension in all this that we don't hear much from directly, but the sort of conservative forces in Qatar, there was a viral graphic which did the rounds a few weeks ago, which basically said, you know, don't dress immodestly and a sort of picture of some high heels with a cross through them, you know, no to homosexuality, no to drink, drunk, uh, public drunk, all these things. And everyone was kind of like, this is appalling. But it was, t- it was by some sort of civil society group. It was by a group of Qataris unconnected from the World Cup who sort of said, we don't want this stuff in our, in our country. One of the things that, you know, is kind of really frustrating about this is that one of the voices that's missing from this, and maybe the Khalid Salman example is probably a reason why, is that Qataris aren't ever spoken to. And part of the reason is because, you know, they're fearful that they're going to be manipulated, that they're bad actors in the press that will make them look bad. Um, partly because they're hidden away by, you know, they, they don't want to, you know, this isn't a cut, this is an authoritarian country. I mean, speaking freely isn't something that is necessarily encouraged publicly. You know, when you do speak to Qataris, there is, it is a much more nuanced picture. And there's a lot of unhappiness at the World Cup as well, because it's like, who is the World Cup for? 
And there are some that say we're very proud of it, you know, because this puts this makes Qatar kind of a leading nation in the world, which is the reason why they wanted it in the first place. And part of that is true. I mean, into if I told anybody back home in Essex I was going to Qatar in 2005, you know, they'd be like, where? Like, are you sick or something? You know, as in, like, have you got a cold? Now, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who doesn't know where... Well, you might not be able to place it on the map, but know that there is a country called, called Qatar. So there is a kind of pride in that. But there is also the fact that this is a lot of money to spend. And then this is a cradle-to-grave, a truly cradle-to-grave welfare state. But it's still at least $200 billion, probably a hell of a lot more, being spent on that when there are other things that a lot of Qataris view that they should be spending money on. You know, one of them, a lot of Qataris still, even though they have fabulous benefits, still have a lot of personal debt. Why not clear personal debt? Why build a metro system? No Qataris will use the metro system. They drive everywhere. It's a car-obsessed country. And so these arguments about, about people coming and, and, you know, this is our country and these are our rules. You know, why are you coming here and wanting to break our rules? I mean, people can be upset about that, but I think it's at least understandable that people you know, would have that about their own country. Do you think, I mean, one thing that I'm really kind of feeling in the last week or two, which, I mean, you know better than me, but it feels like, you know, in Russia, there was lots of great journalism about terrible things going on in Russia, about racism, about human rights abuses, but it almost faded away a bit when the football started and no one was really, you know, it was certainly happening, but it was very much in the background. It doesn't really feel to me like these conversations are going to completely fade into the background when the football starts in Qatar. No, and I think part, part of that is that the, Russia World Cup for all its flaws, and it was deeply flawed. I mean, we have to remember that when it was being hosted, the Ukraine war, it wasn't that it was about to begin in four years' time. It had already been raging for four years. I mean, I visited the front lines a few years ago. I mean, this was a war that had been going on in Europe for a long time. You know, it was it was a deeply flawed World Cup. It should never have been hosted there Um but it was also to a lot of people recognisable. You know, it was a it was a summer World Cup. It was a country that was recognisable to them in football terms, and and a fun place to visit, which Qatar won't necessarily be. <laughs> and 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 a very fun place to visit. I mean, look, Qatar, you know, has its you know, it's just, it's like yeah. the same with this in the, in the Middle East as well. I mean, if I mean, you always find somewhere to get a drink somewhere, even in even in the darkest days of like going to like Jeddah in two thousand eight, you find someone even even if it's some kind of home brewed hooch. But it's, you know, alcohol isn't, it isn't part of the kind of conversation. You're more likely to get stoned with, with hash with young people because everybody smokes everywhere you go, especially in the Gulf. You know, this is a big thing, Saudi Arabia especially. The thing is the Qatar World Cup is so alien to so many people, not just the time that it was, you know, the time of year is alien. In the Northern Hemisphere, I mean, they've had uh, winter World Cups in the, uh, the wintertime in the Southern Hemisphere several times. The, the country is, is alien, the, the religion is alien, the, the region is alien, the, the team is alien, the, the Qatari national team, that no one knows any of those players unless you're a keen follower of uh, the Belgian second division and first division where you might have watched Erpen, which is a team that the uh, Qatar Aspire Academy uh, company essentially bought so they could bring their graduates in and play in the second and first division in, in, in uh, Belgian football. So I think that's part of the problem is that to many people, it's just so unrecognisable that it's an unrecognisable World Cup to them. And so these conversations are, will continue all the way through. I suspect there will be a little bit, it will tamp down a little bit when it starts because the football is all encompassing and it's going to be, you know, there are going to be so many matches in, in quick for, succession. For a day, which is unprecedented. Like that doesn't normally happen. And there's, and of course, there's always going to be other stories. I mean, there's, 
just off the top of my head, you know, as well as all the Qatari stories, you have Iran, a country that I know very well. You know, I've reported from several several occasions. I have an Iranian family. You know, this you know this is a place that is undergoing what many think is the beginnings of a new revolution. You know, and the and the national football team is caught up in that, and they're playing England. The little Satan, uh, the great Satan, and Wales. I'm not sure what Wales would be. Would that be? Would that be the tiny Satan? It's a very political group, that isn't it? Yeah, it's quite. I don't know what what that would be in, on Mate. satanic terms. Where what level <laughs> Wales would be? Satanic dragon. Satanic dragon. You know. So, you know, I think Iran is going to be a, a huge issue. You've got a replay of the Serbia Switzerland game, which I covered that game for the New York Times in Russia, and because half the half the team from Kosovo. And so that became a huge issue, that became a political issue. So I think it will it will fade a little bit, uh, but this is you know these are going to be questions all, all the way through. And I, I think the organisers hope that this will go away, but I mean it won't. And one of the, the other thing to bring up about this as well is that this is what the government, the royal family, the people in power in Qatar wanted. You know they wanted this microscope. They wanted they wanted this visibility that football and the World Cup brought them, but they were not prepared for the criticism that that kind of... Do you think they're taken aback? Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. I don't think anybody was expecting it. And one of the things is, I, I, not to... I mean, it sounds weird saying that they're sympathetic about this because there's so many wrong things, but Qatar is a very small country. It can't just shut out the entire world. It has spent its entire existence, and even... When the Altani family was a was a tribe under British protection before the existence of the official existence of Qatar, this is a country that's had to exist between Saudi Arabia and Iran and colonial powers that coveted it and used mediation and negotiation to get around it. You know that's why it has this massive U.S. air base there to protect it in case of well exactly what happened when you had the Gulf blockade. You know so that nobody could invade it. It's in a very Tenuous position it involves clever negotiation and clever uh, political calculus. And so when it comes to World Cup criticism, you know, at first they tried to block it out, but they actually had to deal with it and somehow had to engage in the process. Now, that's not something that the UAE has ever done or will ever do. And there's a legitimate criticism of the, of the UAE and how Manchester City, for instance, which is owned by, you know, the brother... Of, of the ruling family, of the, of the ruler, who's the, who's the deputy prime minister and minister of, of presidential affairs, and how that club is being used to launder the UAE's reputation, which is far worse in human rights terms than, than Qatar. So it's, you know, Saudi Arabia doesn't listen, because it has so much money through oil, doesn't listen to any criticism at all. It just uses and leverages its wealth. Who, of course, own Newcastle United now. They own Newcastle United and, and to shut that down. Russia, Russia would double down on criticism and what aboutism, and they wouldn't even dream of taking on board any Western criticism. So Qatar has, to its credit, I think, has had to, but partly because of the situation it finds itself in, one of the reasons why it wanted the World Cup in the first place, has had to engage in this process. And I think that is kind of, I think that's an interesting point about this entire long 12-year period of kind of almost total criticism of Qatar, that, that people could have forget about. I think that's one thing also that's it's easy to forget, but 12 years is a very unusual amount of time to be a yeah. prospective host. It's unusually long. Six or seven. Long. Yeah. Um, we're going to take some audience questions now, and we've already got a few here, some great questions. Um, I mean, here's a simple one. Why is Qatar so rich? Is it oil money like Saudi? 
It's gas money, basically. It has one of the largest gas, natural gas fields in the world, which it shares with which it shares with Iran, which is one of the reasons, well, one of the reasons of the Gulf blockade was that Qatar, because of this history of mediation and negotiation, has always tried to keep good relations with everybody. So, for instance, at the same time as hosting a US military base, which the Saudis refuse to do, also pays the government salaries of Hamas in, in Gaza. It keeps good relations with Iran, for instance, whilst at the same time trying to keep good relations with, with, with Iran's enemies. For a long time before the Abraham Accords, Qatar was the country that had back channel uh, good relations with Israel much better than its neighbours. I mean, there's even a, a football stadium in Sakhnin, uh, which is an Arab town, and have a, a club called Bini Sakhnin, which is a kind of totem for, for the 20% uh, or 25% uh, Israeli Arab population and, the, and their stadium was funded by the Qatari Olympic Committee and to this day is called the Doha Stadium. So it has kept it has kept kind of friendships with all of these necessary. Uh, and one of the reasons is with, with Iran is because they share this massive gas field. And after 1995, I mean, 1995, what happens is is the, the previous emir, Hamad, whose son Tamim is now in charge, he comes to power in a, in a bloodless power coup, a palace coup. He takes over from his father and he reforms immediately the economy and society and they properly begin to exploit this huge gas wealth they have, which is one of the reasons why they've been... I think they are now currently, uh, per capita, the richest country in the world. Got a question here from Sarah, which is, what benefit did Qatar get from hosting the World Cup? I don't understand how sports washing helps these countries. I suppose, you know, it's getting so much criticism. I think that's fair because when, especially if you think about it from a Western perspective, right, you think about Qatar and you think there's, there's nothing, nothing positive. I mean, for many people watching this, probably the only kind of nuance in that debate might be coming from this or this book or from a, a comment that you might get from, from somewhere else. But you've got to remember that this is a long game. And, and also, I don't think that they were prepared for this criticism, but hosting an international tournament like the Olympics, like the World Cup brings a level of knowledge of your country, name recognition, to a wider world like nothing else, like nothing else. And you also have to appear, like how does this appear to other nations outside of the West? How does this appear to the rest of the Middle East in terms of regional power? Like Qatar hosting this is just, it's like no one else in the Middle East is gonna be anywhere near this for, for, for generations. How does it get viewed in Africa? How will it be viewed in the rest of the kind of world outside of the kind of Western Europe? And, you know, then it's a, an extremely successful way of, of, of kind of recalibrating and telling a new story about yourself to the rest of the world. So I think it, it does work. Sports washing, I think, I mean, I don't like the phrase sports washing. I prefer kind of reputation laundering or something else. I mean, it's, we look at club football, you know, Newcastle, why did Mohammed bin Salman and it was him. I mean, let's let's go. Like people hide behind PIF, the sovereign wealth fund of Saudi Arabia, buying Newcastle United. Why did they want Newcastle United? You know, it's not because they think it's a good investment in financial terms. It's a terrible investment in financial terms when you think about the amount of time and effort that you've got to put into for the kind of return that you're eventually going to get. No, it's because football clubs normalize and football and sport in general normalizes your country who your country is and what your country does. And so, I mean, I interviewed um, Jamal Khashoggi's uh, fiance, Hatice Cengiz, when this Newcastle United deal was, was at first didn't look like it was going to happen. But she was, the only reason he's buying this is to clean his reputation. 
You know, this is suddenly you're going to have Newcastle, you're going to have all of Saudi Arabia's brands, places, shirt colors, everything associated with Saudi Arabia is going to be looked at through a completely different lens. One which is a soft focus through sport. Manchester City has exactly the same, a very clever kind of process going on with with Abu Dhabi. And you, you certainly have that with PSG and Qatar, which is successfully, look, think about, think about um, Arsenal. Right? What's Arsenal Stadium called? The Emirates, because of a massive... Which is just, it's a sort of London landmark unconnected from football, like you'd say, you know, the Emirates. I'm going to the Emirates, right? I mean, you don't even think about it, but because the state-owned aircraft airliner struck this deal, it has now seeped into the lexicon in the same way that Etihad has done for the same reasons in in, in Manchester. And, and I have no doubt it'll be the Aramco or Saudi you know, stadium in, in Newcastle. The same thing happened. So sports washing, if you'll use that phrase, reputation laundering, it works. I just think that the World Cup, it's incredible benefits, but it's an incredible microscope. And I think that they weren't prepared for the the kind of, but it's still a net gain. That's the other thing to remember. And I guess they've got these huge these huge defence contracts and whatever, how many, however many billions of pounds, and that probably matters a lot more to their long term future than a few negative articles in the English press. Well, probably. I mean, you have to ask the French about that and the Raphael jet fighter that was sold to Qatar um, shortly after the the bid was won. So, but yeah, it's. Um, I do understand the criticism because you struggle with that sometimes. But I think when you see it as a net gain overall, not just looking at it about how it affects how we in the West think about it, and to a certain extent as well, think about it this way. One of the reasons why Qatar has investments in the West and and wants to kind of be friends with everybody is to protect its position in a very dangerous neighbourhood. But what happens when the blockade takes place in, in 2017? And there's a very real danger of them being invaded by kind of coalition of forces, that having the World Cup and having those kind of financial connections to France, to the US, through arms, through football club ownership, through broadcasting rights, you know, it made it, it affected our bottom line if they were invaded. And that meant that that couldn't be allowed to happen. So in a, in a way, it was kind of setting up a kind of firewall against kind of to protect their own backs. And I think it was successful. If the Saudi government had fallen, you know, five or six years ago and ISIS was rampaging, then I think, you know, this horrendously kind of cynical geopolitical lesser evil, isn't it? So so, so please keep asking questions. Just click the ask question button under the video screen and then press send. Um, you can tweet at us using the hashtag IQ2. We've, we keep getting great questions. Um, here's one. Oh, need hours for this. How has Qatar awarded the World Cup? How did the bid get accepted when it's basically desert heat? I mean, I suppose the latter part of that is quite easily answered, isn't it? About the heat. Essentially, I mean, there's, look, we could get, we could have an entire hour about the about everything that happened in FIFA. I think the short answer to this is, and we have to remember, there hasn't really been a kind of smoking gun when it comes to kind of these accusations, which Qatar denies that, that they massively bribed uh, FIFA's exco members to vote for it. They basically played an extremely bent game better than anyone else and used hard political power to achieve those ends. And I think that's probably I think that's probably the closest we're we're gonna get to understanding it is that, you know, it's one thing saying the sums involved in like small I don't know, like a like a couple of couple of hundred thousand in the brown paper bag being given some to vote, compared to a massive gas deal right, between the head of your country and the head of another country that just happens to have a vote on the FIFA Exco, 
right? What can you do with that? You know, that's that's real power in action. And if a state decides, and Russia to a certain extent decided this as well, if a state decides that it's in their interest to host this tournament, you know, that's what's that's what's that's the full weight of the state, not just in terms of those bilateral deals, but in the use of spying, in the use of hacking, in the use of, you know, there's a there's a great um one of the Australia bid uh, representatives wrote a book a few years ago and she describes in an interview how she, you know, they turned up and every, in, in Zurich for this vote, everybody's phone stopped working as soon as the Russians turned up because the, the FSB were there and they'd all brought like mobile phone jammers and communication jammers there. That's the level that this was at. And so the short answer is that they played, they played a, a better game than anyone else and they, they realised that they realised how to wield hard power to get it. And on the heat, I mean, I was guitar in July and it was intolerable to be outside for more than about 10 minutes of the, oh, of the heat of the day. Awful. But, awful. And, of I mean, course, and of course, until five years ago, that was the plan, right? Well, it was. And, and you know, there was... The, the other thing, remember, is the vision thing, right? I mean, I've, I've sat down with, with um, Seb Blatter several times I've interviewed him. He's quite an interesting character because FIFA is kind of... Obviously, deeply corrupt, but he was kind of like... I don't know, he was this kind of guy who... Essentially, he was the manager of a golf club, and then suddenly the golf club becomes kind of the richest, most powerful sports institution in the world. And he wasn't kind of quite equipped to deal with it, but he knew how to keep power within the golf club. And so whether I'm not sure if he was actually ever personally corrupt. I don't think he was, but he did have this kind of vision of FIFA, which was that it's an international organization. Football is going to be taken away from the this from the power centers and it's going to be spread to the rest of the world. So there's going to be it's going to be taken out of Western Europe where the money and the power is and we're going to give it to all the smaller countries. And he, and he massive he oversaw a massive expansion of FIFA. One of them was one of his first jobs as FIFA president was to make sure that Palestine was recognized, which was a you know, incredible political gesture. I mean, I, there's a there's a couple of chapters in When Friday Comes. Of, I, mean, I spent a lot of time in Gaza and the West Bank and see how football has grown there, largely because of FIFA recognition. I mean, there's this there's a great story that Jerome Champagne told me about how he was he was the political advisor to Blatter at the time, and him Blatter and I think it was Platini flew into the Rafa airstrip just after this announcement was made, and all could have travelled through Gaza Strip being being greeted as heroes, right? And so. He genuinely believed in the idea that football and his job in football was to, um, well, win the Nobel Peace Prize, perhaps. But, you know, that football could be used for this very, you know, for this kind of spreading of goodwill and the spreading of peace and, and such like. So the idea, this vision thing of having a Middle Eastern World Cup was something that, you know, kind of fitted in almost with what his vision, even though he was against it and he voted for the USA, it wasn't completely nuts to say that the, the Qatar, I mean, I always suspected that they might win it, but the, the heat thing was in, like, cause I lived, I've, I've gone, I've lived through three Gulf summers. I can tell you if you went out and walked for 20 minutes in a 50 degree heat, I mean, you're probably going to pass out saying that, right. They had this, they had this um, idea for kind of um, outdoor air conditioned stadiums. And I went there. Uh, first time I felt that was in 2017 and it was kind of late August and it kind of worked. I dread to think what the carbon footprint for that was. Well, they say they use solar panels and whatever else. I don't quite know how much to believe. <laughs> All right, mate. I believe you. Thousands wouldn't. But like, you know, it's, it, it was. It's, it, it kind of worked and it was kind of impressive, but it wasn't the solution. And so... Well, we've got I our mean, fans queuing up outside, you know. It's... I, mean, it, I mean, it's bad enough when you see the way that workers are treated and how they have to work in, in that heat anyway. And so... You know, I'm, gl I'm glad. It, I mean, it's going to be a bit chilly, if anything. I remember going to the Asian Cup in 2011, a couple of weeks after they won the bid. 
you know, and it was like, I remember seeing Qataris in ski jackets and it was, it, it was pissing it down. You know, it was like, so, so take an umbrella and a scarf. That's a good question. In all the human rights discussions about Qatar, there has been virtually no mention of the position of women. What would you have to say about that? I think it's a very good question because, you know, a lot of countries in the Gulf present themselves as, you know, extremely forward thinking in that respect and and the UAE is one of them Saudi Arabia is one of them Qatar is one of them they'll point to the role of women in the workplace they'll point to female ministers but it's what is what lies underneath and one of the issues of course is that they essentially a gender apartheid based legal system where women frequently have fewer votes a fewer rights than men and I suppose that the only issue or one of the big issues is that in comparison to Iran which is obviously has an, an appalling record of human rights towards women, that it, it, it appears to be much more uh, open-minded, but it's it's still uh, light years behind equality. I mean, the West has, still has a long, long way to go in assuring equality between men and women, but it is an issue that I'm surprised hasn't been picked up on more. There's a question from Mark in Hammersmith. Um, do you think Saudi Arabia could ever host a World Cup? There are some pretty serious rumours about this recently. Is there a country which is too immoral or restrictive to host the tournament? I mean, China has no. been mentioned recently. I mean, no. I mean, the, I mean, the IOC, I believe, has just brought in a kind of human rights element to, to Olympic Games because it was just getting so much criticism. I mean, football hasn't done that. Of course, hosted the Winter Olympics earlier this year. Yeah, and and of course they've they've they're actually looks like they're going to bid for the World Cup, which is going to be, I believe, with. Is it Greece and there's one other country that they're, they're, they're going to bid it? Uh, yeah. Italy, was it? No. Egypt, Egypt. Egypt. Let's be honest, right? The moment that PIF was allowed to buy Newcastle United, essentially anybody, there's no there's no one that's too bad to buy a football club to host a tournament. There is anyone will host it. Saudi Arabia, it has the money, it has the power within FIFA if it wants to. Um, and it wants to push hard enough, it, it will do it. And I think that's a really sad indictment of of how football's gone, that that that's, you know, that, that power and money will talk. A question here from Marcus. Are there any countries boycotting the World Cup? And if so, why? I can't think so. I mean, not, I mean, I think Norway boycotted it by failing to qualify. Um, and, you know, there was some, you know, there's been, there are a lot of fans that are boycotting it and I can understand their viewpoint on that and I can respect it. You know, that's, you know, fair enough. I think boycotting, personally boycotting things is is a, is a great political power that people should use more and it's quite an effective tool. But yeah, I can't think of any. I think that Norway would have been put in a bit of a difficult situation. So Scandinavians have kicked off the most. I mean, Denmark in particular. Yeah, yeah, but they're going to go and they might make... But ultimately, they know that going to the going to the World Cup matters more. So, again, the Qatar can point to the hypocrisy of all of that. A question from Tom. I mean, we touched on this earlier, but do you think football has always been a part of politics in the Middle East, or is it a recent thing? No, I think football and politics are intimately connected everywhere you go. Just because it's a game of the street, and there is something as well of the. So it, by that, I mean that what happens in communities and in countries often is reflected in this stadium full of people so what those hopes and dreams are of that community often reflected in what goes on in 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 the football stadiums and also governments especially authoritarian governments are absolutely addicted to the idea of of uh, reflected glory through football of controlling that populist urge that you get through football that kind of you know this 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 wonderful aesthetic and pageantry in football they want to be part of it i mean 
one of the masters of that was Hosni Mubarak in Egypt, who very much wanted to use the national team going through its, its probably most successful period in history uh, for political ends. So I don't think you should see it as the Middle East. I think we should see it as everywhere. That if you understand football, and there's some great writers that have written about this. Um, I mean, David Winner being one of them, David Goldblatt, all the Davids that have written great books about how football, how and how we play football is a great mirror and reflection of society. And I think that's what it is. And that's what When Friday Comes, go back to it, the book, When Friday Comes. That's what it is. It, Football is a reflection of society, and through that football, you understand a place and time in the Middle East, I think. The name, When Friday Comes. Yeah. What's that about? Because <laughs> they play football on a Friday, so it was a pun on when Saturday comes. So because it's the holy day, and that's where you know, a lot of people play football. It sounds like a book that you might need to update, not, not just with Qatar, but with you know Newcastle and Saudi. This conversation about the Middle East and politics is only going to get bigger, oh, isn't it? Oh, it's going to get bigger. They're, they're, it's now the biggest story in football is the power of the Middle East and the Gulf in football, and it will only get bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, but what a what a great way to end. Um, thanks a lot. That's James Montague. When Friday comes, um, I'm Joey Durso. Thanks again for joining us, and have a lovely evening. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q and A's, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared.